0: Hello, I'm Rev. Angel Kyoto Williams, I'm a writer, activist, author, and ordained Zen priest, and you're listening to Mindful by Design, a Himalaya learning audio course about mindfulness, meditation, evidence of how it all works, and some guidance to make it work for you. Over the next episodes and accompanying meditations, I'll introduce you to some core principles of mindfulness practice through both science and lived experience. To access the exclusive guided meditations, go to Himalaya.com slash mindful and enter promo code mindful at checkout to get your first 14 days free. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're asking, why is it important to have a mindfulness practice that is tied to outer work as well as inner work? How is it that the work that we do with our mindfulness practice affects the social world that we live in and the people around us. We'll also look at the question of what can mindfulness be useful for, both for the transforming of trauma and also in caring for others? And how is it that spaciousness is important for sitting in discomfort? Dr. Sarah King is a UCLA-trained neuroscientist, political and learning scientist, education philosopher, social entrepreneur, public speaker, and yoga and mindfulness meditation instructor. She is currently a postdoctoral fellow in neurology at Oregon Health Science University, the executive director of Peace in Schools, a transformative mindfulness education nonprofit, and the founder of Mind Heart Consulting, through which she offers up the science of social justice framework. I wanted to speak to Dr. King specifically because her unique framework shows us how wellness and social justice are one and the same. How mindfulness can matter not just for our personal lives, but also for what it means for the world that we live in. Speaking with Dr. King, we can see that not only are wellness and well being inextricably linked with social justice, we can also see that the question of who it is that's doing the science has very much to do with the questions that we ask to begin with. With this in mind, let's turn to my conversation with Dr. Sarah King. So good to be here with you. I have the pleasure of having some familiarity with you, but why don't you say a little bit about what you do for our listeners?
1: My name is Dr. Sarah King and I am a mother I am a Black woman. I'm a multiracial woman. I'm queer. And professionally, I am a neuroscientist, a medical anthropologist, an education philosopher, and I am the creator of a framework called the Science of Social Justice. And additionally, I'm also the executive director of a nonprofit, a mindfulness education nonprofit called Peace in Schools that is located in the Portland, Oregon area.
0: One of the things we've been doing here on Mindful by Design is being able to have conversations with people that have backgrounds in science. And what is so exciting about your being here in particular is that you're kind of a bridge between the streams that we're talking about here in the form of your work on the science of social justice Tell us a little bit about what that means. Is there like, is that a thing? Is that your thing? Is that (laughs) that
1: (laughs) like? Yeah, yeah. It's officially a thing. It is a a part of my intellectual property as the creator of it, of the framework, that social justice and well-being are one and the same thing. Social justice to me is not... A partisan issue. And so I'm just really, through this framework of the science of social justice, I'm hoping in a very lovingly disruptive way to make clear that social justice and well-being are inextricably linked.
0: So you did your PhD research with a focus on anti-oppression. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, I did my... Ph.D. at UCLA, looking at the experiences of middle schoolers of color on the East Coast. All of them were from first-generation immigrant families, mostly actually um, from the Caribbean. And they had a mindfulness and yoga intervention, which was brought to their school with the intention of solving a true crisis, which had emerged, which had traumatized the entire school community what they found was that simply offering up, well, it wasn't even an offering. It was actually mandatory. It was mandatory that these students meditate in their health class. And the curriculum itself was completely divorced from any mention of the fact that their bodies were encountering systemic oppression on a daily basis. And so when you are asking these young bodies of color to sit and be with their trauma, to really delve into that latent trauma of oppression in the nervous system. And you're being told from the point of view of science, well, the data says these practices are good for you. And for a group of those students, they were actually experiencing deep trauma in the context of that yoga and mindfulness intervention, but being told, made to feel as though, oh, that's because you're meditating wrong. And so from that experience with them, I was able to realize that having any form of contemplative practices, which are completely divorced from opportunities to engage with the meaning of social justice inside of the body and in the community, that these practices are inherently going to be traumatizing.
0: Given who is often positioned as teachers, who is often positioned as the people that are giving instruction, particularly in the fields, in the landscape of meditation and uh, yoga, can they have care? By that I mean there's often, it is the big great demographic of people that take up meditation and yoga as we currently understand it, right? are middle aged mid to upper middle class white women, So can they have the kind of care that is necessary? When you have a situation of, I think it's like 89%
1: of the teaching population in the United States are white. And I don't know what the figure is. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's, it kind of like, you know, when you consider the actual population makeup of the United States, um, that figure is... Kind of shocking to take in, and I don't have the same figure for yoga and meditation teachers, but assuming it to be um, skewed in a similar way, I don't believe that the various fields of science, nor the various training centers in yoga and meditation, and even more broadly than that, just like learning in the United States in general, places of learning and engagement, the work has not been done to understand truly the impact of whiteness and white supremacy on the nervous system, on trauma, the expression of trauma itself. So to expect for someone who has lived their entire lives inside of a body where everything around them in society has been constructed to be toward their advantage and to uplift the idea of like, embodied superiority and indeed imperviousness to the pain and suffering of people of color and then to bring these same individuals into schools full of youth of color and expect them to be able to meet with their pain with authentic care and knowing it's impossible
0: so you, you've used the word trauma say something about what that means on a body what does it look like what does it mean what does it mean physiological? What does it mean on the the brain? What's the neuroscience of mm. what that looks like on the brain? How how do I kind of wrap my mind around this term trauma because it gets kicked around a lot?
1: Well, I would say that an excellent starting point is the concept of stress. So in our lives we're constantly coming into contact with stimuli whether that's the things the objects that we see that are within our vision the things that we hear smells are all potentially triggering of a stress response inside of the body the relationships the people in our relational spheres that we come into contact with can trigger stress inside of the body and stress is another word for this delicate dance inside of the body of its attempts to constantly adapt to all of the sometimes overwhelming amount of stimuli that we are coming into contact with, right? So the body has to secrete cortisol, for instance. And the cortisol is a stress hormone That we're secreting at different levels throughout different times of the day that is allowing us inside of our nervous systems to engage either in say the sympathetic nervous system which is kind of like you can view as a gas pedal and it says go towards that go towards that get that or it says get away get away and then there's the sympathetic nervous system which is engaged as like a break and when stressful stimuli is taken out of our environment then it is giving this signal to our body of like oh you know i can i can rest i can relax i can digest um, i can experience a certain kind of spaciousness and calm and we'll find ourselves moving through these different embodied states of stress and adaptation to that stress, and then not stressed and calm, resting, digesting. So trauma, that word trauma, what that means in my interpretation at least, is any time that we encounter some sort of stimuli in our environment, which overwhelms the stress system of the body, our ability to modulate that stress response And in some cases, the break is pressed down so hard of that parasympathetic nervous system that we go into a trauma response that reflects the faint and the freeze response. And we're numb. We're stuck. We're dissociated. It's hard for us to be present and fully in our bodies in any given moment, we're distant, detached, or that gas is pushed on super hard and we're in a place, we're locked into a zone of deep reactivity to everything that comes into our path. Our bodies are interpreting stimuli that is not necessarily threatening, as a threat to our survival, to our life. And we are reacting constantly from that place of needing to defend and to protect ourselves from imminent death. And that would be, I think the most succinct way that I would describe that trauma system and the ways in which when we're associating it with the brain, depending on from in utero, our mother's experience Our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers experience of stress gets passed through the bloodstream literally into the water in which we dwell as babies and begins to shape our brains, right? The amygdala and our fear response or the insula, right, which is um, associated with our like relationality and our ability to pick up on social cues inside of the environment. This is all getting shaped in utero and then throughout our lives. And if we are happen to be born in a body that is black, indigenous, Latinx, marginalized, oppressed, then it is going to have a very deep encoding on the structure of the brain itself and our ability to recognize this intergenerational trauma that is passed down womb to womb to womb, and our capacity to heal and liberate ourselves from that which has been passed down.
0: So you're saying that this is in the body, this is not like, as as you intimated before, kids being bad, kids being, having poor behavior, or acting out in class, that this that there is potentially a correlation between what gets reported as poor behavior, poor choices, antisocial behavior, maybe fighting, so on and so forth, that that has something to do with not just the particular moment of something arising, but something that, that travels through further than just where they are in that moment.
1: There's so much wisdom in what you're articulating because I think for many people, especially with regard to the experience of race, there can be so much shame, guilt, anger, rage that meets with any given moment where the racial identity is really what's at question or what's at stake, right? That which is either threatening our survival or giving us um, privileges and advantages, right? And I would like to propose that many of these deeply emotional responses because emotions are always stemming from nervous system states of unmetabolized intergenerational trauma, Oftentimes, the way in which we're responding to meet any given moment is actually a response that is coming from our mother or father or grandparents, or it could even go seven generations back. So that when people are in this place of reactivity and the reaction is so disproportionate to what's happened, so disproportionate, right? But then There's a cultural narrative that pathologizes particularly people of color and the poor. But in this case, going back to people of color, there's a narrative that was very carefully and calculatedly produced since the inception of this country that said they're born deficient. This pathology is innate to these people because of their mental and intellectual weaknesses.
0: Hmm. So what can mindfulness do? How, how can it be useful given history, given, given trauma, given historical trauma, given modern day trauma, given stressors of pandemics and shootings and killings, oh my. What is the design, if you will, that potentially gives them, and and I want to go two directions with this, that potentially gives them a, I'll always talk about Indigenous, Black, and people of color first, a road, a path, a path forward, a path that potentially mitigates, eases this historical trauma. That's one. And then the other is what is it that we can say about mindfulness and its use to people that are in the position of stewarding the lives and care of people, young people, grown people, whose bodies have been impacted, whose bodies and, and, and as a result of their bodies, their, their minds, their, right, their, their chemistry, their, the nervous system, the, the chemical feedback of nervous system impact what can mindfulness do in all the ways that this is, this is incomplete, both parties?
1: <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, the first question in particular brings to mind a number of articles in the field of mindfulness research. There's always this question of does mindfulness work? And the incredible infighting over what that word work means. So living in a capitalist society, I feel as though mindfulness has been duly co-opted as a part of a machine of productivity that tells us that anything that we input into our bodies has to leave us somehow a better producer, a better worker, more highly evolved and efficient consumer and producer of products. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So that that's not just a producer, but like a consumer of products.
1: Right. Like how are you going to know what to buy if you can't chill your nervous system out? How you know what goods are most in alignment with your identity if you're too stressed out? And so I would love to compassionately push back on the paradigm that says that mindfulness is about reducing stress, reducing anxiety, depression, and all the many things which we have thousands of data points to supposedly point in the direction of. I would say that mindfulness in my practice, just me personally, has really been about expanding my capacity to be ever more deeply with discomfort and suffering. And where that has immense value, particularly for BIPOC folks, black, indigenous people of color, um, is that I love I love that image of like a glass of water with a bunch of salt being dumped into it. And then you drink it, and like the salt is the suffering of the world, right? So when you are your capacity is like this cup of water and you go to drink of your own essence, your awareness is hard to taste. It's hard to digest. It's hard on the system to metabolize and digest. But when we are able to expand from that cup of water into a bathtub, into a lake of fresh water, and that same bowl of salt gets dumped in when we go to drink of our essence and our being it's not to say that the suffering and the discomfort of the reality of our lived experience of oppression isn't there it's not going anywhere in our lifetimes but the taste of it is fundamentally different there uh, is the possibility of spaciousness and um to to tie that into this intergenerational analysis that you're bringing rev my mindfulness practice um, would not be complete without it being fundamentally integrated with my ancestor practice Uh, and in speaking to the stewards that you named I would really say that in my perception, there's something dangerously hierarchical about the ways in which mindfulness programs for youth take this position of the teacher as the knower of mindfulness and embodiment and the students as passive recipients of said knowledge that doesn't seem very just.
0: You know, I had this conversation with Dr. Clifford Sarin and one caution was that the, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, that the the measures, that the instruments that we're using, we're talking a lot about mindfulness by design, including, you know, evidence and research and science. Um, And he as a person in a white male body that has done, a significant amount of research cautioned that the instruments that we use to measure are blunt and the mind is refined. What is happening to brains? You know, how it is that generational trauma is really impacting brains because we see so much about health disparity, we see a lot about educational attainment and know so on and so forth and I think most of that research or most of that conversation circulates around the idea of current time experience right what is the having been born in in a lineage of people's whether the fact of race or the fact of poverty or over time over over generations what is it doing to the brain
1: I want to be cautious here before I put on my expert hat (laughs) that really neuroscience has no idea. So I can make a postulation for sure. And so in most neuroscience research, no matter who it is, like if you're talking about fMRI research, right, brain scanning. No matter who I put into that brain scanner, I have to have a, quote, standard brain to compare it to. Otherwise, how will I make my measurements and my analysis? And I remember I was actually with Clifford Saren in Japan, where we met at a Mind in Life conference. He's one of my mentors. And I remember one of his colleagues coming up to a podium and saying, do you realize where the standard model of the brain comes from in neuroscience? It came from a pod of something like, I don't remember the exact number, 12 or 21. My mind flips things around sometimes. It was either 12 or 21 European, white, Canadian brains Mm. (laughs) that were put together, (laughs) scans, and averaged. And then they made this template, this standardized template And that is what has been being used to compare literally all other brains from all other brain scans too. Now you take that, you take that fact, which is like, it flummoxes you, right? It kind of wallops you over the head when you hear that. You're like, what? You take that. And then when you look into the data that we actually have from brain scans, and you'll see that on average, only somewhere between 3 to 5% of the participants in neuroscience research are people of color. So almost all that we know, we, the neuroscience community, knows about brains comes from white European brains. And then we are extrapolating from that data to the rest of humanity. So that is why I say that we do not know, we do not have a clear picture Indeed, the instruments, the instruments are blunt, the data being produced is blunt, but it has a really wide-ranging impact on how people of color's intelligence and ability is spoken about.
0: Is there any hope for it? I mean, is... Should, should I not be mm. doing this podcast um mm. all things considered right like is there is there any is there any hope i mean it's like we don't know anything <laughs> where, right, where, right. do you see any value for for mindfulness can we get anything of use out of it given that there is so much misinformation there's so many um i like to say shenanigans around the science of it can we get any any use out of it? Like all, all other than that?
1: Just speaking from my personal opinion, um, part of the reason why I chose a path in academia from black studies to neuroscience, why I, a black woman, wanted to become a neuroscientist was because I understood that if I didn't, who else was gonna be looking out for people like us? within the field, number one. And number two, I would say that the knowledge which has come from academia as the institution, right, which has the power of like so much knowledge production within, the, within society, the knowledge that has come from it has been great, has, has helped us to achieve things which we never could have imagined centuries ago. But for the vast majority of the history of academia, there was no such thing as the study of Black people and our lives and our knowledge and our history and our culture and our experiences. We were experimented upon, but you couldn't walk into a university and expect to encounter knowledge making practices, meaning making fields of rigorous study that were about the Black experience until Black Studies was created in 1969. So I'm using that as an analogy to say that if that is possible, that kind of movement and momentum of knowledge making and value making around Blackness within academia, the same, I believe, can be said about neuroscience The same, I believe, can be said about mindfulness, but it has to be done super conscientiously.
0: I appreciate this so much. Is there anything else that you want to share that I didn't touch on?
1: Yes, I would like to share with listeners that one of the things that I'm really excited about in just having entered into my position as executive director of peace in schools is that my framework the science of social justice which stipulates that social justice and well-being are one and the same thing and in fact contemplative practices are key to discovering the why and the how of that we are going to be integrating that framework into the already existing peace in schools curriculum in order to offer this mindfulness experience up, a mindfulness experience that is completely grounded in social justice up, I hope in the future on a national basis to youth across the United States. And I hope that you will join in and, and follow us in our efforts, support us in our efforts, because I think it's absolutely crucial and key given this moment of time that we are in.
0: Well, I I certainly agree, and I hope that all of our listeners will run, don't walk, to uh, go and find out more. Uh, don't 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 digitally trip <laughs> as you go. <laughs> um, and uh, I just want to thank you so much for this really illuminating conversation, and I think, you know, contemplative in the best ways, and complexifying, which I think is exactly where we need to be in this conversation about what it means to be mindful, and especially given that things are constructed, that things are designed, that we could be mindful by design. Thank you for listening to Mindful by Design. I know that some of you that are listening would like to make sure as you deepen your own mindfulness practice that you're also clear about the ways in which the world outside are directly connected to the world that you create for yourself inside. Maybe you'd like to do that by joining us in the Mindful Certification at mndflcertification.com. Join us next time for another Awakening Conversation. To get the most out of this course, check out the guided meditations that accompany each episode available only on the Himalaya Learning platform. Himalaya Learning is an audio learning platform that provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts to fuel your personal and professional growth. To access exclusive content for this course and others, go to himalaya.com slash mindful and enter promo code mindful at checkout for your first 14 days free. We hope you enjoy.